Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Sandpaper Lullaby Podcast, brought to you by Revelation Records. Check out Rev's new Spotify playlist series, where they tap friends and families to create custom playlists for your listening enjoyment. Delve into the midst of Scott Vogel, Steve Aoki, comedian Jonah Ray, and many others for a good time. Go to Revelation Records on Spotify. That's where it's at. Searching for a light? You've found it. And as always, enjoy Sandpaper Lullaby. in D.C. In the, in the 80s. Mm. Um, I first was turned on to D.C. punk in the school bus, and mm. uh, somebody turned me on to Minor Threat, and that was actually the first album at 12 years old that I bought. Not, not just the first punk album, the first album, yeah. period. So for me, music was always really local, mm. and you know, and the punk scene in D.C. was especially uh, vibrant in the '80s. So there was always a concert. There was just tons of good music. So did you fucking get it? So I grew up on this stuff. This was the soundtrack of my yeah. adolescence. Mm. Um, That was James June Schneider, our guest this week on Sandpaper Lullaby. James is the director of a new documentary about the Washington, D.C. punk scene called Punk the Capital. We caught up with him last week in Brooklyn at the Nighthawk Cinema to talk about his experiences with the D.C. hardcore scene leading up to the release of Punk the Capital and his new film about the 60s counterculture film collective Newsreel. And as an extra special bonus to you, James was nice enough to provide several excerpts from the film, which you will hear throughout the episode. Enjoy. What the fuck have you done? Well, yeah. So Paul and I, you know, really kicked this thing off. He had this amazing archive of Super 8 film, um, both in the films that he had made and as well in a lot of outtakes that Mm -hmm. I wound up going through. So, you know, our friendship and his footage really kicked this whole thing off. Mm. Long, okay, long. So when did the sort of, when did the seed start and how long did it take to grow? Well, I'd done this film called Blue is Beautiful with a DC band called The Makeup. Mm. Um, and my friend Paul Bischow, with whom I made Punk the Capital, uh, back then he was helping me out a lot with that film, and I got to see a lot of his other films that he had done on mm. Super 8. Uh, feature films in Super 8, pretty underground stuff. Mm. Um, and as it went on, I started to see more and more bands that he had shot. So mm. at the time, late 20th century, nobody had done a film about DC Punk mm. at that point. So I was like, oh, this is... 
you know, someone's got to do this thing. Mm-hmm. So we actually started collecting in the early 2000s. Mm. Started filming things just when opportunity arose around, you know, 2005-ish or something mm. like that. But not really into around 2013 did we really kick it off. So mm. it had a long gestation period, most yeah. of which was collecting and aligning and stuff. You should be well aware of this, everyone, that no matter what that's being created in your backyard, the fact of the matter is that it's created in your backyard. And it's important because if it's not the greatest, it's certainly a beginning. I'm going to tell you something, everyone. These people, Slicky Boys, you know, they pioneered the first punk rock scene in Washington, D.C. You know, Slicky Boys, we all kind of grew up knowing about the Slicky Boys, going yeah. to see them, and they were just, they were kind of always around, and they, mm. they haven't gotten a lot of cred. But as someone points out in the film, you know, you know, sure as hell we were punks back yeah. then, you know, before the definition kind of changed. Yeah. Put a bullet through the jukebox! This was kind of our first song that sounded punk. Okay, let's see if this sounds punk. <laughs> How that definition had changed mm. and how, you know, how uh, how much of outcasts these people were at the mm. time yeah. and how they really wanted to do their own thing. They really had, you know, the definition of punk, if, if we could try to make one, they mm. had it yeah. back then. It's just that the sounds changed, you know, yeah. and things like that. But they're... They had built a whole other world, parallel world, yeah. um, and they really didn't have even that many models for what it should be like. Mm. So that was really fascinating. Starting in 75, 76 in yeah. D.C., there really was a small but really um, dedicated punk scene. I was thinking back to an issue of Flipside that I read, and they were talking about a D.C. family tree. And it started with 1979 and their brains. I was like, there were so many bands before that, and uh, going back to the mid-70s in the D.C. scene. So I thought, uh, I'm going to write a letter, send it to Flipside, and I start off, Dear Flipside, the D.C. punk scene began as far back as 1975-76 with bands such as Overkill, The Look, The Slicky Boys, and in the following two years, bands of power and energy played the D.C. circuit as well as frequent out-of-town dates. Everybody, if anybody knows DC punk or hardcore, they know Minor Threat and everything that came after that. What what came before that, not many people know about. So I'm wondering, like, were you discovering all this stuff in real time as you were putting this together? Like these bands like the Enzymes or Overkill and all this stuff. You were finding out about this as you were collecting all the, the footage. Mm-hmm. How was that? I mean, you know. That's a good question. Well, I would. it really was a band-by-band band sort of thing or mm-hmm. just... Uh, 
kind of, uh, it depended on the, the, the part. But overall, yes, it was a big discovery. And mm. that um, was important for us that this be a film that would be of import to people from D.C., that they mm. would lo- you'd learn about your own history too, yeah. which is kind of like a, you know, constructivist way of looking at things. Let's take a look at ourselves. Let's you know, let's let's build something here that we can uh, pick up on too. Um, mm. So there's that, but then there's also um, a lot of bands that I didn't know about mm. for sure beforehand. Bands like the Enzymes I discovered by going through the Super Eight footage, uh, and even. What's really crazy about that is that Paul, for some reason, Paul Bischow, mm. who I did the film with, for some reason, he had a three-camera Super 8 shoot that night. It's like, what? <laughs> he still doesn't remember. He doesn't remember what he was thinking. But I was like, God, you know, the, the band that... And so, actually, that winds up being the longest yeah. musical piece in the film because I was like, they need, they need the time. They yeah. haven't had it. They haven't yeah. gotten the attention. So it's like a two-minute, you know chunk of music, Mm. which is the longest piece. It was a very politicized time for youth. This is even pre-Reagan, but there was definitely a left-wing sensibility to the scene. Madam's Organ was a good venue for us as far as being the kind of space where we could be ourselves. We were in the punk tradition of social protest. Uh, but we were also kind of Dadaistic and nonsensical at times, too. So this song is about how irritating it is to go out and do your laundry in the late capitalism. It's called Speedwash. The film yields such obscure bands from the early DC punk scene as the Enzymes, who you just heard in the last clip. It's strange to think there still might be undiscovered bands in the well-documented DC punk scene, but due to the avid archival nature of the DC scene, such diamonds in the rough are constantly being discovered. In the early scene in DC, most of these people were incredibly sweet, highly intelligent, and they were music fans. They were all collector geeks. The DC Punk Archive in the library, like, again, how did that, what was the start of that, and how did the film get involved with it? Um, Well, we had been in contact, obviously, with a lot of archive holders Mm. by that point. Um, So we, and the idea had been spinning around the library for Mm. some time that, you know, we should do something about punk and go-go. And at some point, talking with the people at the library, we decided that we should set up a meeting Mm. with a bunch of archive holders and kind of stakeholders, if you will, in kind Mm. of DC punk history. Mm. Um, And so we had sort of a Knights of the Round Table type getting together. And that was that. From then on, is, now it's over five years old, and they've yeah. been doing concerts at the library, yeah. and they've got, you know, I remember when they just started, they were looking for models for what they wanted to do around the U.S., mm-hmm. and they really couldn't find anything kind of on that level, you know, this yeah. the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and that kind of thing, but that yeah. doesn't really, you know, not, Translate, the, not yeah. the same kind of community yeah. effort they were hoping yeah. to, they couldn't really find any, 
and now they've wound up being sort of the a model mm-hmm. for that sort of thing, which is fantastic. Yeah. It's a great thing. Yeah. James is obviously an archivist, just like the DC punks in his film. Those very same ideals of preserving subculture, no doubt inspired him to pursue his next documentary subject, Newsreel, a collective of underground film producers who helped shed a light on the quickly developing countercultural movement of the 60s and 70s in America. Yeah, so this is another film project that's been going on also for quite a long time. Mm. Um, The Newsreel was a film collective in the 1960s that documented the counterculture of the time and didn't just document it, they participated in it. Yes. They were making movies about different wings of the movement that they would then take out and screen and discuss and, you know somewhere between 50 and 80 films within a three-year period. Mm. So it was a very intense um, operation. Filmmaking groups from all over the U.S., they were, they start, it started in New York, yeah. and um, New York and San Francisco were kind of the main producers of films but there were branches all over the place mm-hmm. and you know even some overseas so this was you know the war in vietnam was central i would say yes. at least in the beginning mm-hmm. uh, in terms of their subject matter but then it branched out and eventually became third world newsreel around 1971 yeah. which exists till this day Well, uh, how did you discover Newsreel? Like, how did you personally find out what it is? <clears throat> well, I had heard about the group. Yeah. Um, and there was going to be this big protest in D.C. in September in um, 2001. And I had set up a meeting with one of the members here in New York mm. at 9 o'clock in the morning, September 11th, 2001. And he showed up because he was already out by the time things started to go down. So that was my kind of first meeting of Newsreel. It was tied into kind of an intense, uh, you know, world-changing event. So uh, then I started to learn about the group from other members. Um, Within the group, I co-programmed a retrospective in Paris at the Cinematheque um, in 2003 and have since been involved in one way or another in with the group, even mm. before the film okay. came about, programming or whatever, mm. um, workshops yeah. with the films that still still get people revved up. Yeah. Subjects like the Black Panthers, yes. uh, women's movement, the first environmental films. Mm. Was it, are there any specific things that they did at that time that you found? Interesting, inspiring. Well, it's all about DIY, that's for sure. I mean, they, from, you know, the producing to the distribution, they were, they just did everything themselves. Mm. Um, I would say just the whole thing is inspiring, the dedication, you know, Mm. people, people 
put the rest of their lives on hold to work on this because mm-hmm. it was you know a time of intense urgency which we mm-hmm. should be feeling today mm-hmm. um, and they were you know so involved in this and believed so much in what they were doing um, and did put their lives on the line occasionally yeah uh, and in the process created a you know really precious document of what the counterculture was at the time mm-hmm. um, we tend to think of the 1960s uh, in terms of you know the civil rights movement and mm-hmm. anti-war movement, and those are clearly super important uh, aspects. Mm-hmm. But there was also all these other things going on. And I think Newsreel sort of um, is a great place to see the whole spread of the counterculture. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not in you know not everything obviously, but a pretty widespread of the late 60s counterculture. films were uh, rather they weren't signed uh, so it was signed collectively that was also really interesting just to see that they were just doing this not out of any self recognition yeah. or anything this was just which is you know interesting in our day of self-promotion yeah you know and self-branding and all that they they did not want to be in the picture this yeah. was not about them this is about these films and what they were going to do for the movement and I think it was more of a collective consciousness in a way or unconsciousness maybe yeah. <laughs> in yeah. that Everybody was coming together to, to produce this, and yes, it's, it it shows the levels of the underground, like past the Black Panthers down to you know things in the movement that were a little bit more gritty or um, politically, I would say, you know things like the Weather Underground or things like that, things that aren't usually shown on a, a CNN documentary. <laughs> exactly. There's you have a crowdfunding. Um, campaign you're going to start for the newsreel? Yeah, coming up in a few weeks, uh, two to three weeks, we're going to start a crowdfunding mm. campaign for that film as yeah. well, like we did with the the Punk the Capital film. Yeah. Probably a little, a little smaller, but um, mm. you know, it's a great way also just to involve people in the process mm. and stuff. Um, and with the DC Punk film, it was a lot of fun, I mean, yeah. just getting people involved and what was happening, you know, and mm-hmm. I haven't gotten any death threats yet, but that's always good for not sending people their movies. But uh, trust me, yeah, as someone who's had their fair share of death threats, <laughs> it's good. While some hardcore fans might see this subject matter as a departure from DC punk, the passion and dedication for which both movements are known for share a common thread in what inspires James to continue in his filmmaking. So, but there's parallels, uh, of course. There are parallels because the, the Newsreel film is about another movement, if you will, yeah. a filmmaking movement, kind of a one-group filmmaking movement. Mm-hmm. But they kind of redefined, uh, at the time, there was nothing like that. They redefined what filmmaking was about, you know? Yeah. So it's been interesting seeing the parallels between these two, uh, two subjects, yeah. between the punk film and this one. And um, it's, really, it's really intense, um, and they're, just, you know, these the people that were involved, a lot of them are still with us and really intense, amazing, inspiring people. Yeah.
so yeah, as far as you know, when did the the touring of the film start, and what have been some of the highlights of the the screenings? Yeah, I'm not sure where to start on that one. It's it's been wild. I, we've done probably over 50 screenings, all accompanied hmm. up till now, and it's just uh, often with guests, most of the time with guests. Hmm. Um, it's just been overwhelming. I mean, well, the feedback has been you know completely uh, amazing hmm. about the film. What's well, one thing that's been incredible is that kind of all ages are coming out for this thing. Like people are bringing out their moms, you know, mm. so that they'll finally get what punk rock is yeah. about and stuff. Cause <laughs> yeah. we kind of layered the film. Uh, I like, I, I like that in filmmaking, how you can kind of create these layers that that build over time mm. that can kind of tap into different audiences. Um, and it seems to function on that level. Um, and of course, you know, people have been coming out for Q and A's like in DC, we had a, a five screening run where each screening was like, you know, it's Don Zantara who recorded all yeah. of the mm -hmm. stuff at Inner Ear Studio or a bunch of people that had been there at Madame's Organ in those mm. days. Some of the guys from Black Market Baby were there and mm. Diana Quinn from True Facts and the Insaniacs. And, um, so it's just been amazing. I mean, these, it's also these just amazing coming togethers. Mm. Uh, and when you're on the road, um, you know, the stories that come out, there's been a lot about straight edge. There's been a lot of um, other things. Um, the discussions afterwards have always kind of veered off into a lot of, you know, deeper subjects too, you know, mm. about, you know, ways of living, being in control of your own life, mm. uh, creating a parallel kind of, uh, you know, subculture. And, and what that what that does in terms of empowerment mm. and how important that is these days and how hard it is these days too yeah. because everything's blending together yeah so a lot of the discussions have been almost like these like um, sort of therapy sessions about modern culture yeah. they veered off uh, you know uh, into the ether there. Thanks for listening to our conversation with James. You can check out the website for Punk the Capital at dcpunkrockdoc.info and his own website at info.jamesjune.info. If you'd like to purchase signed copies of any of my books, you can get them directly from me when you order them from sandpaperlullaby.bigcartel.com. And be sure to be back here April 5th when we will be closing out this season of Sandpaper Lullaby with our long-promised episode with Brian Baker of Minor Threat and Bad Religion, barring whatever might happen between then and now. Thanks to James for sitting down with us and letting us get a sneak peek at Punk the Capital, and extra special thanks to John Woods at Nighthawk Cinema for providing the space to interview him. The producer of this show is Elliot Muka. I am Tony Rettman, and thanks for listening to Sandpaper Lullaby. Oh, and please remember, if you become a paid subscriber to the Sandpaper Lullaby newsletter, you get to hear the unedited interviews used for the podcast, plus other bonus content.
please stay safe out there. Take care of each other. Let's get through this. Thank you for listening. Oh man, kick ass rock and roll. Wow man, kick ass rock and roll. Once again, this episode is brought to you by Revelation Records. When I say you say Talk at Revelation Records, folks. Established in 1987, Rev are the true independent hardcore specialists. Whether it's the earlier classics from Gorilla Biscuits, Judge, Youth of Today, Bold, Inside Out, Shelter, and others, or the 90s bangers from Texas is the Reason, Far Side, Into Another, Quicksand, and so many more, Rev has covered it. Go to revelationrecords.com and start today. Go to Rev HQ for a deeper dive into all things punk and hardcore and beyond. Rev HQ carries releases from labels such as Dark Ops, Bridge Nine, Equal Vision, Death Wish, and more. Do you wear clothes? Rev has it. Make a change? We hear you. New website in the works. Stay tuned. And as always, thank you for listening to Sandpaper Lullaby. Sandpaper Lullaby.